I'm Mike Sheridan and this is The Dell. Director Brennan, how are you, sir? Hello, Michael. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time. How, how are you doing, sir? How is, um, how is the family? Is everybody okay? Everybody's fine. Yeah, we have our vaccinations. And so my wife and I and our children and grandchildren. Uh, the grandchildren don't have the vaccinations, but the children do. So, yeah, we're, we're, thankfully, we avoided getting uh, contracting COVID. So has the past 15 months or so been quite quiet for you? Comparatively, have you just been at home like everybody else? Yeah, I haven't traveled much at all. I haven't traveled to Ireland. I usually, you know, get to Ireland at least once a year. Haven't been able to do that. But uh, yeah, we've been sequestered here and uh, outside of uh, Washington D.C. Uh, things are slowly opening back up, restaurants and other things, and so hopefully the same will be taking place in Ireland uh, very soon. Really, really enjoyed the book. I uh, thought it was beautifully written, but also very easy to read. It's one of those books that's easy to digest, given the kind of volume of information that you're putting across in the book. I found it totally fascinating. But one of the, one of my favorite parts of the book, I think was how you wrote about your father, how you wrote about your father own, uh, which is the most Irish name ever. <laughs> own Brennan. Ridiculously you Irish name. Own, yes. Exactly. Own Brennan from Roscommon. And I found it fascinating that you, you said your patriotism came via your father, who was of course, an Irishman from Roscommon. Well, um, my father emigrated from Ireland in 1948 when he was 28 years old and then became a naturalized U.S. citizen. And he instilled in my brother, sister, and myself at a very early age just how special it was to be an American citizen, that people like himself you know, come from far and wide to take advantage of the opportunities, the freedom, and the liberty of this country. And he said that uh, too frequently Americans uh, who are citizens by birth take that very special privilege and honor of being an American citizen for granted and told us never to do that. So again, it was a sense of patriotism, a tremendous affinity for everything Irish at the same time. But uh, it's what uh, I think really contributed to my decision to uh, spend my professional career working uh, on behalf of the American people in in the U.S. government. And you grew up in a very much a working class area in Jersey. Is that right? Yes, it was blue collar. My, my father, who, who was a farrier and blacksmith in Ireland, and when he came over to the States, uh, he adapted and became uh, a pipe fitter uh, with construction uh, in New York. But uh, it was a very much a working class neighborhood. Uh, went to Catholic schools, uh, elementary schools and high school. Uh, and so it was uh, a... Hard Scrabble, uh, northern New Jersey town, uh, but uh, very much enjoyed it. And it was a tremendous, tremendous, you know, friends and, and uh, family life. Is there something about working class towns or what, what I suppose you call a blue collar in America? Because you talk in the book about seeing this guy who's a few years older than you, uh, you know, walking up and down the street, dressed in a suit, going to work, having his briefcase, who became a future director of, a, of the FBI. So what was it about that area that you grew up in? Or is it a working class thing maybe that just made people kind of really want to achieve? Well, yeah, many of the children in certainly my neighborhood, uh, when we went to college, we were the first um, individuals in our families who had that opportunity. 
And so I, I do think that uh, given that our parents had struggled to put us into school and help send us to college, we really tried to, I think, achieve whatever types of academic and professional success we could as a, a way to pay tribute uh, to the sacrifices that our, our parents made for us. So yes, Louis Free, who was a former director of the FBI, went to the same uh, elementary and, and high school that I did. And uh, I saw him going back and forth to work and didn't realize to law school and didn't realize uh, that he one day would become the director of the FBI, just like I didn't realize that one day I, I would become the director of CIA. So in the same street, we had uh, two directors of uh, U.S. government agencies grow up. Those, uh, those two schools, the elementary school and the high school, have some serious boasting rights, right? <laughs> two directors <laughs> of national agencies in there. I want to talk just about initially when you decided to join the CIA after seeing the ad, it kind of felt like or seemed like it was more of a whim. You kind of seen something ad for the Central Intelligence Agency. You weren't quite sure what it was about, but you applied anyway. What did you think you would be doing when you applied for that, when you first applied for that job? Well, it was a mixture of uh, having a sense of patriotism and wanting to do something uh, on behalf of my country, but also uh, in in search of a, a job and a profession. And so uh, I did see an ad in the New York Times when I was going to school one day uh, that the CIA had placed uh, looking for some men and women to, to join the ranks. Uh, and so I went on to graduate school and submitted my application to the CIA. And thankfully, they were willing to take a chance of me. I had already spent some time overseas. I went to school in Cairo. I traveled through Southeast Asia a bit. Uh, and so I think they, they felt that that foreign experience in my lang- Arabic language uh, would have been very useful on the operational front. And so when I joined the agency, they had hoped that I was going to go into the operational side, uh, conducting espionage overseas. Uh, but pretty soon after I joined the agency, uh, I found that the analytic work uh, was much more in keeping with my interests as well as maybe my strengths. So I shifted off to the analytic side of the CIA uh, pretty early on. But and then bounce back and forth throughout the course of my career at the agency between operations, analysis, management, and other things. But one of the things about the CIA that I found so attractive is that uh, there are many different opportunities uh, to work in the agency doing different types of, of work, whether it be operational, analytical, uh, and there's scientific and technical work as well. So uh, I just didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how long I was going to stay at the agency. I wound up my first part of my career, staying for 25 years, and then went back as director for four years. Are there any kind of preconceived notions about the CIA? Maybe not, not, not necessarily that you had per se, but that are out there in popular culture. So like, I'm obviously, I'm in, I'm in Dublin in Ireland. For me, I, I hear CIA and I think, oh, it's Jack Ryan. It's a Tom Clancy novel. It's a, like, was there any kind of preconceived notions like that on your part or are there notions like that there now that you're like, that's not the case at all? Or are there, are there some that are maybe the case? <laughs> well, I think it runs the, the gamut uh, from a lot of the movies and stories that are out there about the glamorous life of a CIA officer overseas, as well as all the risk taking that they're involved in. And some of that certainly is true as far as taking risks and, and uh, traveling around the globe. There's also a lot of tedious work that goes on inside of CIA's you know, corridors uh, in terms of just trying to stitch together bits and pieces of information so we understand what's happening in the world. Um, so back then, 1980 was when I joined. There was a lot of uh, press reporting about the CIA, some of it factual, some of it very bogus. 
The same is true today. And one of the biggest challenges I have had throughout my career and continue to is try to separate the wheat from the chaff in the minds of a lot of people who think about the CIA. Because if you were to read a lot of the, the criticisms of CIA that really are not based on fact at all, you would think that the CIA is a, you know, a bunch of, of killers and murderers. And, and that's not the case. The, the CIA has some really outstanding people who are doing some very, very important work, not just for the United States, but also for global peace and stability. But uh, there's just a lot of rumors that are out there that uh, continue to circulate about what the CIA is involved in. I know one of the biggest issues that you had early on in management in the CIA to some degree was that communication between government departments. And it's like anything in the 70s, 80s and 90s, even where something like, you know, I was looking at something on the Zodiac Killer recently where there was no communications between the different police departments and he got away. And you look at something on a much bigger, more horrific scale like 9-11, whereas if maybe the agencies were speaking to each other a little bit uh, more coherently or a little bit more often, that something like that could have been avoided. Yeah, well, it is a challenge because a lot of the work that goes into the intelligence profession, law enforcement and security is very sensitive. And so you want to make sure that you're going to be protecting the secrets that you have, as well as the privacy of, of citizens. And so there are different components of the U.S. government that were trying to protect those secrets, but it was uh, to the detriment, I think, of protecting our overall security. And so prior to 9-11, the FBI and CIA were not as collaborative as they should have been. Even within CIA, a lot of different components would not share information with one another because, again, they were trying to protect the identities of individuals who were working with the CIA. They're trying to protect these very sensitive uh, sources, uh, technical and human sources. Uh, so what we have to do is to find the proper balance between uh, ensuring that the secrets will remain secret, but at the same time, uh, providing information to those other organizations and people who have a responsibility to prevent these types of horrific attacks from taking place. At a certain point then as well, you begin uh, giving the daily briefings or what bi-daily briefings, whatever it is, to this sitting president. I think the first president you get into was H.W. Bush. And then obviously you went, went on with uh, Bill Clinton and, and the President Obama and, and such. At a certain point, just purely on a, on a personal level, are you sitting in the Oval Office or wherever you're doing these briefings? And does it feel a little bit surreal to be sitting across from the commander in chief? <laughs> it was very surreal. As we talked before, here's a, you know, a, a kid from a New Jersey blue collar neighborhood. And there I am in the Oval Office talking to the most powerful person in the world about intelligence matters. And there were more than one occasion where I had to pinch myself to make sure that it was real. I just found that uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, they were all so good and kind, uh, welcoming new people into the administration, into the White House. They put me at ease. Uh, but I must say, it's a very intimidating experience. And uh, the first time I went in there, I could actually hear my knees knocking and my teeth <laughs> chattering because of the nervousness that I had. Is there a common thread maybe amongst all of the men that you saw that you noticed kind of early on, like people said that about President Obama, that he's just so confident, that it's just this, like he kind of just loses this confidence. Well, yeah, President Obama has this very calm demeanor, uh, even when there are some really serious issues and challenges that are raised. Uh, 
I was very much admiring of his ability to very calmly absorb information and digest it and then make some decisions. But I think all the presidents that I served, um, they, they shared a, a great sense of commitment to the national security of the country. They, they put the national security and international security above personal and partisan agendas. I think they all had tremendous professional integrity. Uh, it's a very, very difficult job. It it's really requires a tremendous amount of, of focus, as well as interaction with the experts. Uh, and I really felt that at least the presidents that I served really did their utmost to carry out the responsibilities as best they could. And then you became kind of senior counterterrorism advisor to President Obama. And something I found was fascinating, and I think certainly people outside of the U.S. won't realize is that there's not a whole lot of money in government. If you're going to work for the government, there's not a huge amount of money in it. And it can be a struggle, particularly if you're if you're coming from the private sector uh, into, into the public sector in, to work in government, even though, you know, as senior counterterrorism advisor, you're working in the White House. You know, the, the Oval Office is literally above where your office is. But it, it, it can was that a personal struggle to some degree? Was there some adjustment there or was that pretty much just that, no, this is, a, this is an honor and uh, it's a yes no matter what? Well, it was always an honor. And I served in the government for 33 years and living in the Washington, D.C. area, <clears throat> just like Dublin, it's a, it's a high cost of living area. And working for the government, you're not going to uh, become rich. You, you shouldn't. Uh, there's tremendous psychic reward, uh, and you have a great feeling that you're contributing to, you know, your country and your fellow citizens. But it can be a struggle, and there are sacrifices. Uh, and so I had to rely uh, on my my wife's support. Uh, thankfully, I had um, a, a have a wife uh, for over 42 years that uh, was able to keep the home fires burning. And a lot of CIA officers uh, require the love and support of a spouse or parents or siblings to help them out because the hours are long, <laughs> the pay is not enormous. Uh, and so it's really a commitment that you make uh, to your professional career. And when I had the opportunity to serve at the White House, when President Obama asked me to rejoin the government after I had retired the first time, there was no way I could say no even though I knew that I was going to go back into that government service, uh, make less money than in the private sector and have a lot more hours, a lot more responsibility. But it's something that I think really drives a lot of individuals to, to do what they can uh, because uh, you know, our lives are relatively short. Uh, and to the extent that we can, can help uh, others uh, during the course of our lives, we can do it. And I found that the work in the government uh, allowed me to do that. Your wife was a huge admirer of, of President Obama. You kind of talk about that too. Were there moments where President Obama maybe pulled her aside for a moment and just told her that you appreciated that, you know, you weren't going to be home a lot of weekends, you're going to miss a lot of recitals, whatever that is? Yes. And there were times when I, my wife and I'd be invited to dinners at the White House, maybe for visiting dignitaries or whatever. And there were several times that President Obama um, sat intentionally uh, had Kathy, my wife, sit next to him at the dinner. So he had an opportunity to talk to her and to express his appreciation. It helped me a lot because it was a struggle at home to, you know, I, I'd get up very early. I wouldn't get home sometimes till nine or 10 o'clock at night and then have to do the same thing the following day. Uh, and he just uh, told Kathy just how much uh, he appreciated, uh, you know, my, my service and my work and how much he appreciated her doing everything possible to support me. 
And given that she was such a huge admirer of President Obama, it, it really helped me at, at home after those uh, dinner conversations that she had. You kind of talk about in the book also how when you when President Obama knows he has to, he's going to see you or if you need to see him urgently, it's it's not going to be good news when the senior counterterrorism advisor wants to speak to you. Were those moments difficult or were they was it purely um you know so straightforward that you just have to convey whatever news or whatever information or whatever intel you have to the president so he can make a decision? Well, sometimes it was, I don't want to say routine, but uh, we were used to having to deal with a lot of issues such as, you know, impending terrorist attacks and the actions we had to take against them. Uh, But there were times when it was very, very difficult uh, to bring bad news. And I relate in the book how I had to tell President Obama about this uh, awful shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, that uh, resulted in the deaths of uh, over 20 young children. There was a slaughter uh, and uh, I was the one who told him that. Um, and just we were both in, in shock. And uh, as fathers, we really felt it uh, quite emotionally. Uh, and so it's those moments when I think the humanity uh, of what um, really is involved in terms of, you know, these types of, of crises and how it affects us, it really hit home. So, uh, you know, but usually when I would be coming up to his office, uh, he knew that I was either going to be asking him to make a very difficult decision on something or was going to bring him you know, bad news about some type of terrorist attack that had taken place. And one of those decisions was uh, to um, you know, give a go to a mission involving Osama bin Laden. And you say how Obama, and I know he's spoken himself about it over years as well, where he said it was 40% sure or he was given intel that they were 40% sure that Osama bin Laden was in this in cave. And Obama said, well, it's 40% more than we've, we've had previously, so we, we have to go for it. You were in that situation room as that was going down. Were you just purely concentrated on what was happening and the, like, with the information being relayed to you by where the Navy SEALs were, all of that, or was there any sense of the magnitude of that moment and what was going on? Well, it was... It was really um, deep into the details because for months leading up to that operation, I was working very closely with the CIA, with the special forces and the U.S. military and, and President Obama about how we're going to ensure that this was going to be a successful mission. And so while I was uh, watching and observing what was going on, I was thinking about all of the things that were going to happen and needed to happen for it to be a success. And the very difficult points, such as you know, getting our folks out of country after the operation you know, took place, after the assault on the compound, I was very, very concerned about the helicopter ride back into Afghanistan. It was 90-minute helicopter ride over Pakistani terrain, difficult terrain, and the Pakistanis knew something was going on. They had already scrambled some fighters. Their radar was up, and I was concerned that even if bin Laden was killed, if one of those helicopters was shot down or you know, crashed and we lost a dozen or two dozen of our you know, U.S. SEALs, uh, that would have been just a tragic, uh, tragic event. Uh, so it was a lot of white knuckle moments um, during that period of time. Uh, and then after the operation was a success, we had various responsibilities. I had to call the Saudis and tell them that we got bin Laden and see whether or not they wanted his body. And they said no. So there was just a lot of orchestration uh, of activities throughout the course of that day, as there was in the days, weeks, and months uh, prior to it. 
And obviously there's not a huge amount you can tell your partner as as a CIA official or as somebody who's working in government. Was that one where you just really wanted to tell your wife, Grace, what what was going on, what was happening? Or, you know, was it, was it just, again, the blinkers are on? I just need to focus here. Well, she knew that something was up because I was spending even more hours at the White House in the, <laughs> the weeks prior to the operation. But Kathy had been used to, over the years, uh, knowing that there was something happening, but that I couldn't share any of the details with. And this was one of those occasions. And I said, Kathy, just trust me that this is critically, critically important and I need to dedicate the time to this. And so once we got bin Laden, it was one of the first phone calls I made was Kathy to tell her to, to watch uh, President Obama speak to the nation tonight, uh, because that will let you know exactly what I've been involved in over the past uh, number of, of, of months so uh, she she respected uh, the, um, the confidentiality that I had to abide by, and I didn't want to burden her or others with this secret um, because we were so concerned that if word ever got out about this, uh, that Bin Laden could have escaped that compound and we would have lost our opportunity to get him. Did, you, did anybody mention to you that The Rock had tweeted about <laughs> what had happened? <laughs> kind of vaguely, but The Rock tweeted what happened. Did that come well, up at all at any meeting? <laughs> No, it wasn't one of the bits of intel that was brought to me. There was a lot of other things that I was told about at the time, but the fact that The Rock tweeted uh, was not one of them. So then you become, I mean, at a certain point of, at the end of the at the end of the first term, start of the second term, you become the director of the, of the CIA. You're nominated to become the director of the CIA. Was there any point that you were maybe hesitant to take it? Like, you know, obviously you have to talk to your, your family, you have to talk to your, your partner, but was there any part of you that thought, you know, of 30 odd years in government, maybe that's enough? Yeah, well, at the end of the President Obama's first term, um, I was exhausted physically, emotionally, uh, because of the tremendous you know, challenge uh, that, that that position had. And so I was planning to retire from the government once more. But when President Obama uh, asked me to be the director of CIA, um, I knew that I couldn't say no. And so when I talked to Kathy about it, uh, she was planning on our retirement as well. Uh, she also said, you can't say no. Cause by then, you know, she was totally bought on to the Barack Obama, you know, bandwagon and uh, told me that uh, I needed to take it. And so there was a, you know, a momentary, you know, hesitance I had, but leading the, the women and men of CIA, the organization that I served in for 25 years, uh, it was, I felt, the capstone of, would be the capstone of my professional career. What was the most difficult part of being back in the CIA and leading the CIA? Well, there were a number of things. I was, I was dealing with a number of issues with our congressional oversight committees. And uh, I found that some of the, the partisan waters uh, on both sides of the political aisle, and the Democrats and Republicans, really were quite uh, challenging. Uh, and... I always tried to speak very forthrightly to uh, members of Congress uh, and sometimes individuals uh, who had their own agendas uh, disagreed with, uh, with me and my views, uh, but I felt an, an obligation to make sure that I represented the CIA as best and as honestly as I could. Uh, also, uh, when I was at CIA, I, I reorganized the agency. I really felt that an organization of you know 70 years that basically had, had stayed in its own organizational structure throughout that time needed to make some adjustments. And so I overhauled it, which created quite a bit of, of uh, churn inside the agency. A lot of people are wedded to 
the, the established organizational structures that they had grown up in. Uh, but I really felt an obligation as somebody who had served in the CIA for so long to position the CIA as best I could to deal with the challenges of the future, not of the past. And given the tremendous uh, technological changes that had taken place, the emergence of cyber and the digital environments, uh, just how much more challenging the, the work of intelligence agencies has been, I felt that we needed to do, do a better job of integrating capabilities inside of the agency so that we could empower one another to carry out our mission. So that I, I took as a, as a personal challenge and I'm, we restructured it. And, and thankfully that, that restructuring stayed uh, after I left the agency. And you mentioned cyber uh, attacks there, and I'm not sure how much attention you pay to the Irish news. I know you follow RT, the national broadcaster here. Oh, the health industry. I know. The health, yeah, the HSC. Yes. There, was a, there was a very, uh, uh, I think they had, they've handled it very well, to be fair, but there was a devastating attack on, on the HSC, a cyber attack, and it was held to ransom. We seem to be coming out the other side of it now, fingers crossed. But do you see instances like that becoming more and more frequent? And is that modern warfare in another way as well? Is that what it's going to become evolved to? Well, I, I do think it's, it's a global phenomenon now that there are so many uh, elements, groups uh, that are pursuing these different types of malware, ransomware, other things uh, in order to take advantage of the, the digital environment. And uh, I don't think uh, we in the United States or even the international community have been aggressive enough in terms of trying to go after a lot of these hackers. Um, and I do think we need to do a better job of trying to reduce the vulnerabilities that we have, uh, but also to uh, have the ability to recover very quickly from these attacks. And unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of the investments in cybersecurity uh, have been uh, less than what uh, needs to be, because as Ireland recently experienced with that ransomware attack, it can have devastating effects. Uh, and there are a lot of individuals out there, um, and a lot of them are being supported by the, the Russian uh, security and intelligence services, unfortunately, uh, engaged in these types of criminal activities. And I do think that there needs to be a, more of an international consensus about how to deal with it. And I hope that uh, President Biden, as he talks with the other leaders of the G7, will make this a very prominent issue uh, on their agenda so that they can work more collaboratively together to go after these cyber criminals, but also do what we need to do in order to uh, prevent uh, these attacks in the future. Is there anything, and I'm, I'm going to let you go, Sim, very much appreciate the time, sir. Is there anything, if at all, that keeps you up at night? I know President Obama has spoke with the transition with the last administration that North Korea was something that you know, if he was going to stress or worry about something, and plenty of things to stress and worry about when you're a leader of the free world, but that was the one thing that kept them up at night. Is there one thing now out of government that keeps you up at night? Well, you know, now that I'm out of government, I don't have to be responsible for dealing with a lot of these challenges, whether we're talking about terrorism, nuclear proliferation. But I do think in this cyber and digital world, given that the world is so interconnected uh, and we are increasingly dependent on that digital environment for virtually everything we do in terms of finance, education, communication, uh, information flow. Um, and it can be very much disrupted by those who have those nefarious intents. Looking out over time, and when I think about my children and grandchildren's future, I am very concerned about 
the effects of, of climate change um, in the future, uh, what it's going to mean for you know, rising seas that are going to push coastal populations inland, uh, how it's going to lead to migration across borders, how that's going to have economic uh, dislocations, uh, political instability. Uh, it's, it's very insidious, the threat. Um, as uh, climate change evolves, it looks like it's, it's happening very slowly. But when you look at the life of the, of the earth, it's happening very quickly. Uh, and another generation or two, I think, are really going to have difficult uh, times unless we reverse some of these very, very disturbing trends, such as in carbon emissions and other types of development. So I, I am worried about uh, that more sort of pervasive and insidious threat of climate change. And final question, is there anything that would bring you back into government? Is there a role? Is there, are you enjoying retirement way too much? Well, as I said, I, I've served for 33 years in the government, and I spend my time now um, lecturing at my alma mater's, Fordham University in New York and University of Texas at Austin, and uh, talking to students and encouraging them to pursue careers in national security, law enforcement, giving back to this country. And so I enjoy that a lot. And I think you know, looking out in the future, I think my primary role is going to be uh, spending time with my family that I wasn't able to spend with them earlier, but also getting young Americans and young people everywhere to really be thinking more about what they can do to contribute to the, the stability, the prosperity, uh, and the peace and security of their countries in this, in this world. Uh, so no, I have no intention of returning to, to government service. Uh, I'm enjoying this second retirement and hopefully it'll be my, my last retirement. Director Brennan, I can't thank you enough for your time. The book is really superb. I, I can't recommend it enough. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate talking to you and to people of Ireland. And just a shout out to folks in Roscommon and Lacaro and those areas there. I look forward to coming back to uh, sometime this year. 